Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On House of Cards, a recap show from On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. You're finally one of us. One of who? The men in their smoky back rooms. I've pulled in old White House hands, hacks, and policy wonks, and even the show's creator and cast to assess, giggle, and yes, occasionally sneer at one of our guiltiest pleasures. When we lose because of you, there will be nothing. On House of Cards, not your average recap show. I'd like to alert sensitive listeners that this episode includes some non-public radio language. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media and also of this On House of Cards podcast. This one we're devoting to the last two episodes of the season, 12 and 13, which we're calling The End of the Road. And I'm joined again by Bo Williman, the creator and executive producer of House of Cards. Welcome back, Bo. Thanks for having me back. There's a lot to get through in these last two episodes, so let's get started. The beginning of the episode, I thought, was a neat juxtaposition of the two most powerful women in the series, Claire Underwood and Heather Dunbar. Claire is on Air Force One being prepped for a campaign appearance, but she has no autonomy. Contrast that with Heather Dunbar, who rejects the offer of a seat on the Supreme Court a second time, but this time with renewed gusto. Will you continue to do the work I've done, Heather? I can't. If I'm honest with myself, it's that I want this too much. I didn't realize it before I started running. It is not that I've changed, Robert, that ambition has clouded anything. It is that I was blind to this until now, what I am meant to be. And I am meant to be president of the United States. Do you like Heather Dunbar? People ask me all the time whether I like this character or that, and I really don't think about my characters in those terms. When I'm writing those characters, I'm putting myself in their shoes. So while you're writing them, you are them. I'm not I, I'm not actually those people, obviously. Come on. I mean, you have to be in that exercise. I have no idea what it feels like to run for president, just like I have no idea what it feels like to push someone in front of a train. But you have to access parts of those characters that overlap with your own experiences. <clears throat> you know, I, I know what anger is, what loss is, what love is, what trust and betrayal feel like, what ambition feels like. And then I try to use those experiences to get in their shoes as best as I can. You also need to take a step back and say, well, I know things about this character that they're not necessarily even aware of. Okay, so what did you know about Heather Dunbar that she didn't know? We always knew that she had a a deep ambition. You know, she was driven by this sense of integrity, you know, in her own eyes, the sense of justice and what is right and wrong. Uh, But what she realizes, which we knew all along, was that there was something deeper there. She said in an earlier episode that she was going to run the right way. And you, the writer, know that at some point she isn't going to run the right way. Well, what is the right way? It's not spending $2 million for uh, a personal journal of the doctor of Claire Underwood and then threaten the president with it. But that's a little reductive, right? Because, you know, at that, yeah, I could also make the argument that she is a far better option, at least in her eyes, than Frances Underwood is. And if she doesn't do what it takes, she'll lose. If the right way means you lose, is it the right way? 
those are the sort of things that we, the writers, are grappling with and, and that the characters are as well. Up until this time, Heather Dunbar has stuck out in this universe, as we said, because of her uncompromising morality. But Heather realizes she needs to knock down Claire to win, so she calls Doug, agrees to pay big time to get the journal that reveals Claire's abortion. Later, she meets with Frank, not coincidentally, I assume, in the stairway where he'd smoked angry cigars with Petrov. Did you plan for that location from the very beginning? Not from the very beginning. When we worked on episode three, the state dinner episode, I was very interested in seeing parts of the White House that we, the general public, wouldn't normally have access to. There is a stairwell very similar to that in the White House. And uh, we did a little research on that and found that it was a covert entrance and exit. As we started talking about the meeting between Francis and Dunbar, knowing that it had to be somewhere where neither of them would be seen together, uh, we still had that set and it just seemed like the perfect place. Any resonances or parallels with the scene with Petrov earlier in the season, we thought could only help us, but it wasn't (laughs) part of the plan from the beginning. Well, it's great still seeing that black splotch where Petrov put out his cigar. (laughs) So she's down below, Frank is up above on the stairs. And she delivers her threat, and Frank says this. You're finally one of us. One of who? The men in their smoky back rooms. And even if there was a journal, you don't have it in you. Make whatever assumption you want. Is it just Frank that believes that ultimately everyone turns into Frank Underwood eventually? Or do you kind of believe that? Is he speaking? You you like these big, broad generalizations. (laughs) You're a big fan of those. Uh, I see you're not. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, I'm not at all. He's talking specifically to Heather Dunbar. He's not talking about everyone. But who's us he's talking about? The people that achieve the summit the people who get to the very top. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, all of Washington or even all of the people in the leadership in Washington, the people who will stop at nothing in order to get what they want, mm-hmm. who understand that the only rule is that there are no rules. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll just leave that there, and I'll be very careful with my generalizations <laughs> from now on. No, you know, you know, it's good. I mean, generalize uh, up the wazoo, and then we'll, we'll have a discussion about it. <laughs> Let's turn to Doug in the Oval Office. He takes out the journal. He says there aren't any copies. He tears out the offending page, and he lights it on fire. Why didn't you destroy it when I first asked you to? I don't know. Something stopped me. Maybe I would need it one day. For you. To prove my loyalty. You told her I'd hardly call that loyalty. I had to show her I was serious. The journal was a way to do that. I never came close to putting it in her possession. Anything else I should know? I'm sober. It's been 87 days. I meant in regards to Dunbar. It is related. This is a tight race. Make me your chief of staff. You promised. You promised there'd be a place for me here when I was ready. That was before you fell off the wagon and walked in here with that journal. I've made mistakes. I've fallen down more than once and you've always been there to pick me up. But you've been falling down for the past year, too. And you need someone to pick you up this time. 
It's not Remy. It's not Seth. It's me, Frank. This talk feels so intimate, so unguarded. When you set it against Frank and Claire, it seems like this is the real unbreakable partnership in Washington, not the Underwoods. You may be right about that. I mean, we've seen it under strain, and yet it somehow uh, has survived. The one thing that Doug offers that Frank so desperately needs is this undying loyalty. It's what he asked of Peter Russo, in fact, and Peter couldn't give it to him, but Doug always has. Neither could Jackie, and neither, it turns out, can Remy. That's right. I mean, there's there's very few people that Frank can truly count on. Uh, up until really the final moments of this season, uh, it was Claire Underwood, his wife, and Doug Stamper, and then probably, you could say, Edward Meacham. That's about it for Frank. And she's horrified that Frank would take Doug who used the journal to leverage his return to the center of their inner circle back. It seems to be a decision that rather cruelly ignores Claire's feelings. And she confronts him about that by telling him about a woman she met on the campaign trail, whose marriage, I guess she feels, is not unlike their own. I spoke with a woman yesterday in Iowa who said she couldn't support us because she doesn't trust you. Well, I'm not the first politician that some people don't trust. We've been lying for a long time, Francis. Of course we have. Imagine what the voters would think if we started telling the truth. Not to them. To each other. She said at the beginning of season one, when we don't involve each other, we're in free fall. And if they can't trust themselves, if they're lying to themselves and to each other, Aren't they in a free fall? They have been convincing themselves that this was a partnership of equals, that they were brutally honest with each other, if not to the rest of the world, and she's challenging that. Now to the season finale. But let's go directly to the bedroom, shall we? Sure. (laughs) That's so typical of the media. (laughs) She comes out of the bath. She turns out the lights. She slaps Frank across the face. What is going on? I want you to be rough with me. Take me. Claire. Oh! Now listen. Do it. Now! Is this what you want? Yes. You want this? Yes. You want it rough? She wants him to look at her while he does it. He can't. She says, that's what I thought. Was this a fun scene to shoot? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if fun is the right word. It, it was uh, a challenging scene, and, and there's always a certain degree of excitement in traversing this kind of dangerous territory. It's a lot to ask of the actors. Very early on in the process, even before I wrote the scene, I went to both Kevin and Robin and told them what I had in mind. I said, if either of you feel uncomfortable doing this scene, then I'll go back to the drawing board and try to think of another way to get to the same emotional place. Claire needed to be shaken up. She needed to rip herself out of this sort of paralytic emotional morass that she was in. And she wasn't quite equipped to talk about it. So she was going to a physical place. The action is not completed because Frank 
isn't willing to do that, even though it's what she needs. That's pretty much how I described it to them. And, and they both said, yeah, let's go for it. You said Frank isn't willing to do that. My impression, and the impression of a lot of people that I've talked about this with, is that he wasn't able to do it. Well, it's it's not that it's a lack of libido or something, because then I think you're sort of reducing it to, like, she can't be satisfied by this man, and I don't think that that's what, what the scene's about. He can't um, look at her while having sex with her. Not while having sex with her, while... while um, Angrily having Fucking sex her with roughly. Her. He doesn't want to dominate her in a violent way. And I think that what it really comes down to is that if he does that act... I mean, he is physicalizing what the relationship actually is, that, you know, he's been dominating her. So in a way, him turning away, not looking at her is is him denying the truth. And when she says, I thought so, it's not so much I thought that you couldn't do this act. It's that, yes, I thought so. You don't want to look at the truth of what we are. This is On House of Cards. We'll hear more from Bo Williman in just a moment. And then there's a couple that uh, never lies to each other. And that, of course, is the durable Doug and Rachel. <laughs> yeah, when you say they never lie to each other, I don't know. I mean, it's that relationship. It's not necessarily one that's built on communication or trust. <laughs> that's true. But that's honest. Anyway, throughout this episode, we follow Rachel. We get a sense of how far she's come since she escaped from Doug. It's so sad. She's done so much with so little and is teetering on the brink of a kind of contentment. You know, we had Michael Kelly on, Doug Stamper himself, uh-huh. and, and we skipped ahead to talk about Rachel. He told us that at first you were going to let Rachel live, mm-hmm. and then you changed your mind. Yep, that's true. Early on, we thought to ourselves, well, Rachel's got to go. I mean, a a big part of Doug's recovery, the final step, will be him doing away with Rachel, unfinished business. At the end of this season, I said to the writers, what if he lets her go? Wouldn't that be the most surprising thing, that we see that he's found a, a trace of humanity in himself over the course of this season, and that prevails? And then just before we went into prep on the final episode, sort of looked at it again and realized that we were probably lying to ourselves, that it was out of character for Doug to complete that journey towards his humanism in such a tidy and fully resolved way. Yes, we had seen a human side of him in season three, but if his ultimate goal was to get back into the inner sanctum of Team Underwood, uh, he had to do this. So I went and talked to Michael about it, and I said, I I think he might have to actually do it. And immediately Michael said, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. After he told you that the audience would hate him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but we never concern ourselves with that. I mean one should feel some sense of tragedy or sadness at Rachel meeting her end and can judge Stamper for it, but at the same time find themselves rooting for Stamper, his recovery, and getting back into the fold. Those two things are conflicting with one another. That creates a really interesting tension in the audience. It does, but I just want to refer you to a sentence you said a few minutes earlier. You said, a crucial part of 
Doug's recovery would be to do away with Rachel. <laughs> yes. You know, his restitution into the fold, perhaps, but recovery? Yes. It's a, it's a story of recovery for Stamper. Doug is about control, control and loyalty. It would have been far better for Team Underwood if he had gotten rid of her quite early on, but he couldn't control his feelings for her to the point where he ended up getting hurt and ended up drinking again. He had physical recovery that he needed to achieve, but he also had emotional recovery. And as perverse as it sounds... And it sounds pretty perverse. <laughs> that emotional recovery for him is to do what he should have done a season and a half ago. Michael Kelly says that Doug strangled Rachel. Rachel, the actress, says that that was unlikely. He probably ran her over. Uh, you have any thoughts about how Doug killed her? If you don't see it on screen, then we don't know. <laughs> so let's go to the Oval Office now. Frank walks in. Claire is sitting at the desk of power. And she says again that she doesn't believe that they're equals, that she hates that she needs him. And finally that he is not enough. Well, here is the brutal fucking truth. And you can hate me, you can be disgusted, you can feel whatever it is you want to feel, because frankly, I'm beyond caring. But without me, you are nothing. You're right. This office has one chair. And you have always known that from the very beginning. And if you now can't stomach that, well, then I'm a fool for having married you in the first place. But I don't have time to be a fool. I have to run this country and win a nomination. I'm doing my job. Doug is out there doing his job. And it's time now for you to do yours. You want me to take charge? Fine. I will take charge. You will get on that plane tomorrow. You will come to New Hampshire. You will smile and shake hands and kiss babies. And you will stand with me on a stage. And you will be the first lady. Frank says he doesn't give a damn if she vomits on her own time. Is... Frank just angry, or does he mean it? That to him, she's just another Doug. Well, you have to think about how we get to this scene. She's more or less checked out from the moment that she was forced to resign her position at the UN. He thinks that she's being uh, selfish and short-sighted, and that's an echo of what she did in episode six, where she spoke out during the press conference in front of Petrov and allowed her impulses or her emotions to get the better of her. And I think he's just done with that. He, he feels as though he's done everything he can do to give her a wide berth and is only getting punished for it. So screw it. He's not going to try anymore. If this is what it's going to come to, Claire, then I will see you in this way. Part of the problem here is that she suspects that when push comes to shove, he'll choose his ambition over her, and her own ambitions are sidelined. She knows about Zoe getting killed. She knows about what happened to Peter Russo. She doesn't have her crisis of morality until 
Michael Corrigan hangs himself with her scarf in Moscow, and neither Frank nor Claire is really responsible for that situation. But that's not conscience, really. She doesn't feel guilty for Zoe or Peter. But why does she feel guilty for Michael? I think that she respects Michael, who was showing an unbelievable amount of courage. And, you know, Claire's not impervious to being affected by such things. And I think that, you know, having tried and failed to convince this man to leave this cell, I mean, out of a sense of her own personal failure and just the stark image of seeing a man you had talked to for the you know past 12 hours hanging from those bars pushed her to a place where she did something that wasn't particularly... You know, prudent, as perhaps the senior Bush might have said. But in a way, it was sort of an expression of her own strength, her own ability to exercise power. And there's an impulse in her that's been wanting to do that for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And partly, maybe even largely driven by the incredibly strong parallels Michael Corrigan drew between both of their marriages. Sure. He definitely was touching upon truths about his own marriage that I'm sure resonated for Claire and her own. Did you feel, as I did, that Doug and Frank's reconciliation felt more sincere and joyous than the marriage vows in Gaffney? <laughs> well, uh, the marriage vows in Gaffney were an attempt to repair some pretty deep wounds. That sort of thing doesn't happen overnight. I would say the same thing with Frank and Doug. <laughs> sure, except I think that the relationship between Doug and Frank, while it's complex, is not nearly as complex as the one between Frank and Claire. I mean, there is a very clear hierarchy in the Frank and Doug relationship. And so, you know, I think that that's maybe something that is easier to repair than whatever conflict there is between Francis and Claire. And ultimately, Doug and Francis haven't inflicted damage on each other the same way that Frank and Claire have. One thing that came up a lot in the course of doing this podcast is that everyone we spoke to seemed to be hungry for the big old bad Frank Underwood pushing reporters in front of trains and constantly, you know, machinating. You see more humanity, genuine humanity in these characters than the viewers do. You, you're speaking for the viewers. For this viewer, I guess. But there is humanity in all of them. There has to be. Otherwise, they wouldn't be interesting. Then it'd be a cartoon. It'd be a comic book. The things that interest me and the characters, I hope, are the same things that interest the audience and the characters. And that's rooted in their humanity. You know, as for what's to come with Frank, uh, you're not going to hear a peep of that from me. Um, but you are right in saying that, you know, we didn't see them kicking ass in the same way that we had in seasons one and two. That was by design. If it was just another slate of victories for the Underwoods, we simply would have been repeating ourselves and we would have been missing an opportunity to dig deeper into their emotional lives and to explore the marriage. And so, you know, if we didn't go down that path, then I think we just would have become a factory pumping out widgets, and that's not very interesting to me. Okay. Bo, thank you very much. Thank you so much, and I'm, I'm, you know, thank you for doing this series of podcasts on the show. Good luck with season four. Thank you so much. Take care. Bo Williman is the creator and executive producer of House of Cards. 
On House of Cards is produced by Kimmy Regler with help from Jesse Brenneman and edited by me. Katja Rogers is our executive producer. Jennifer Munson is our engineer. You can subscribe to this podcast and On the Media on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you go to iTunes, leave us a review while you're there. It really helps us out. And follow us on Twitter at On the Media.